Well, it's a political retirement sometime in the making, but former Prime Minister Scott Morrison will announce his plan to leave politics for good this week. You, you let all of those things go. I'm sure there's things that you know, you know, people will need to forgive me for and I'll forgive them. This is a plan for middle Australia that delivers for every Australian taxpayer right up and down. This is not just a broken promise, this is a lie. I think you should call an election and put the change position to the Australian people. The 2024 Australian of the Year I'm proud to announce is Professor Georgina Long and Professor Richard Scolia. We're the melanoma gold medalists, but this is not a gold medal to be proud of. Our mission is zero deaths from melanoma. There's thousands of people who have gathered for this Invasion Day rally and organisers say it is one of the largest in the country. The ABC is getting a new chairperson. Experienced media and arts executive Kim Williams was announced today as the government's pick to take over from Ida Butterose. The ABC must at all times be an organisation that is relevant to its, its current time and not in some way bathe in past glories. It needs to really focus on what it is to be innovative and comprehensive in the 21st century. The rap. For the first Friday rap of the year, Camilla Roy Mann and lawyer Geoffrey Winters and Mark Kenny, Professor of Politics at the Australian National University and the host of the Democracy Sausage podcast. A very warm welcome to you both. Thanks, Andy. Thank you, Andy. Of course, it's Australia Day, and as has been the case for many years now, it remains a point of contention for many people. Uh, in recent weeks, we've seen the Woolworths supermarket chain targeted over its commercial decision not to stock Made in China Australia Day paraphernalia, with Peter Dutton demanding we all boycott Woolies. Jeffrey, I've been told you have a nuanced approach to January 26. Tell me how you typically spend your day. Well, I spent today avoiding the heat, which it sounds like a group of men dressed in full black and wearing masks <laughs> didn't quite get the memo about. So, um, well, we're yet to figure out what that's about, but I'd assume uh, my first impression is they're not the most bright individuals, um, but we'll see where that goes. I think it's a really um, complex day, and I think more Australians every year are coming to that view and embracing the complexity. I think there's no point changing the date until we have a good, solid reason to move it somewhere else. And I think when we do eventually become a different form of um, sovereign state, an independent entity, as we assume, that would be the logical time to do that. In the meantime, I think there's a great um, opportunity for debate and engagement with a really troubling past on a day that has that built into it already. So I think you've seen around the country, I know in Bondi in particular this morning and down at Barangaroo in Sydney as well, there are services that are almost sombre and akin to an Anzac Day dawn service that take place, um, led by the local Aboriginal community or the, the Torres Strait Islander community as it would be elsewhere. And it's an opportunity for people to come together, reflect, and then move in the day towards a celebration of what, what it is they want to celebrate. And I think that sort of progression from reflection and truth-telling through to celebration is a really interesting and emergent way in which people do spend this day, and it's certainly how me and my family have for a number of years spent our Australia Day. I like that dualistic approach. I mean, I know lots of people who um, might have taken part in the Survival Day or Invasion Day marches this morning, but still have barbecues and socialise and um, express gratitude, I suppose, in the evening. Mark, uh, Australia, uh, Andrew Hastie says the government and corporate elites are sort of waiting 
waging a war on Australia Day. He took out paid advertisements promoting this message. We saw a number of Woolworths stores vandalised in the wake of Peter Dutton calling for a boycott. The vision I saw was an elderly gentleman neatly writing uh, Happy Australia Day on the uh, outside window of a Woolworths uh, and then walking off in a show of uh, defiance. Clearly, uh, Hasty et al. clearly think they think that there's a political um, advantage or there's mileage in pushing this agenda. What's your thoughts? Yeah, look, I think you've summed it up pretty well. Uh, can I just say I, I, I agree with the way Jeffrey categorised it as well. I think that was a really nice, nuanced um, uh, sort of explanation of where we are with uh, Australia Day, the, the sort of contested or dualistic nature of it, as you said. But as to the uh, the question of Woolworths, look, it does feel to me like um, Peter Dutton leapt on a uh, on a culture war topic there with that. It's been... Uh, it got a, a great deal of coverage, of course. He didn't need to say all that much, just needed to say the right amount and the right words, it, which he did, and uh, it was, it was, you know, pretty heated stuff. And um, and it sort of set the hairs running. And as we see, there was a number of um, uh, sort of actions that, uh, that people took of their own volition after that, whether it was being rude to people at Woolworth stores or uh, graffitiing the mm. stores or in one case, you know, putting a, a lit flare under, under the door of the store, which is a very serious thing to do. Mm. Um, perhaps the guy who was writing Happy Australia Day um, neatly on the window was uh, at, the, um, at the lighter end of any sort of infraction there. Uh, <laughs> as a writer, I, I can't be opposed to someone who um, <laughs> seeks to, you know, put their, put their thoughts in writing, even if it is uh, perhaps a little creative to do it on a shop, but nonetheless, um, you know, that's a pretty harmless kind of message, I suppose. It was an um, act of public uh, disobedience that included an exclamation mark uh, for, for the record. Um, I'm all for punctuation. <laughs> <laughs> but you must just think about the, this, the outrage that Peter Dutton's trying to stir up. I do start to think, who whose vote does that change or whose support does that build for him? And I'm just not convinced that he's actually building a new base or drawing voters across to him who otherwise weren't already seriously entertaining the thought of voting for him when he says these things. So partly I sort of think, while I'd love to live in a country where I'm not hearing what he has to say right now, I don't actually think it has a huge amount of impact ultimately when it comes to the electoral map. Yeah, considering the sort of never Duttons um, who would have never uh, even considered voting for uh, Dutton after his opposition to The Voice, you Correct. do wonder which constituency this plays with. Speaking of The Voice, Mark, I mean, I spoke to Malandiri McCarthy, Senator for the Northern Territory last hour. Uh, she lamented that the fact that so many people don't understand Australia's history. And um, she was really, when I asked her about the government's plan B for reconciliation, she more or less agreed there wasn't a plan B because we were so um, uh, certain that it would win. Are you surprised how quickly the case for reconciliation seems to have fallen off the government's priorities, considering uh, how um, front and centre they were last year? Yeah, I, I, I think I'd probably have to answer yes to that. It, it does feel like the, um, the, the the push for the voice referendum to get up was was done with, um, you know, with all the right intent, but um, the, everything was behind it really, and there was. It doesn't feel to me like there was a great deal of um, consideration, a contingency planning for what to do next if it if it didn't get up, and of course it didn't get up quite decisively. Um, and uh, it, 
it, it was hard to predict in a way uh, how we would feel as a nation after the event. It was, you know, it was a, a kind of a novel circumstance that we found ourselves in, a, a unique set of um, uh, dynamics in play. Uh, we had the referendum, we had that emphatic result, and I think it kind of really took the wind out of um, mm. out of a whole lot of the, the sort of debate, perhaps to a degree on both sides. Um, mm. And I think it will take the nation some time to uh, to sort of work out what it was that we just did as a nation, what we were actually saying. I mean, it, it, it's interesting. The ANU um, uh, ANU uh, survey did a um, uh, like a poll, which we do all the time after elections, and it's you know it's a very respected uh, survey using a very large and largely continuous group of of respondents. And it found that a large number of people who had voted no had nonetheless taken the view that they would like to see Aboriginal people have a much greater say in uh, in the decisions affecting their lives. Uh, and, you know, I mean, my reading of that was kind of incredulity in a sense. Yeah. Um, but it, it just shows that there was, there was a lot going on in terms of the way voters... Um, interpreted what was being put in front of them. The successful campaign to uh, sell the idea that Aboriginal Australia was cleaved right down the middle on the thing, uh, I think was quite persuasive to a number of um, non-Aboriginal Australians who, who, who sort of uh, came to the conclusion that if Aboriginal Australia was um, was divided on it, then uh, mm. perhaps the best answer was no. And I think it was overstated, as we uh, saw from yeah. some of the um, electoral returns in in seats like Lingiari. But um, but nonetheless, it seems to have had a very strong effect. And I think it's going to take a little yeah. while for everyone to work out where to go to next. Jeffrey, do Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders in Australia um, have the right to feel di- disappointed that the current government seems to have set aside um, the, gen- the, the agenda priority that was such a burning priority last year? Um, well, I won't try and speak on behalf of all of us, uh, but I'll speak on behalf of this Aboriginal person and say, yeah, it is disappointing, but I think as just explained, there's a whole bunch of reasons why. I think partly um, the government's wholehearted belief that it would succeed was both a good thing because they threw everything at it, well, a lot at it, probably not everything, but it did expose them to a lack of plan B. The other thing this really highlights is that the the voice movement came from community and it was government responding to a request from First Nations people for how they wanted to resolve the problem. And while that is excellent, one of the the problems that entrenched was that it was continually left largely to Aboriginal people to prosecute and succeed in the campaign. And what that has left is a group of very exhausted and I suspect at worst slightly angry and depressed people, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, who currently just need a break. So I think in part, yes, it's a government failing to have an answer to a massive issue that any national government should have a serious agenda for at all times, but it's probably the case that that is where we've got to because Aboriginal people were leading this space. That is a good thing, but after the defeat are just really on the mat needing to just take a breath and think, where do I find the energy and motivation to come at this again? It's 19 past five. Lawyer Geoffrey Winters and political commentator Mark Kenny are with me. We're wrapping up this week in news here on RN Drive. Now, my word is my bond was what the Prime Minister said when asked about tax cuts back in May 2022. But it's these five 
very personal words, you'd agree, that may come to haunt him in the wake of the government's announcement this week that it would be altering stage three tax cuts to deliver more money to working Australians earning less than $140,000 a year. Mark Kenny, I mean, I want to qualify this really by saying that there has been overwhelming support, certainly uh, by listeners on RN Drive, respondents to the text line for this policy. Uh, I hear lots of a little bit of well, it's a broken promise, but no one's saying it's the wrong thing to do. What do you think? I mean, this integrity issue is going to really um, stalk the prime minister. We know that the attack ads are, are being prepared as we speak. How do you think about all this? Well, uh, I'm, I'm interested in uh, the feedback you were just talking about there. I suspect it may say something about the, uh, the Radio, Radio National listenership. Not an entire, <laughs> not an entire cohort, uh, a, a, not a broad sample, we might we say. We should get the Sky News viewers to participate in the process and see if the data shifts slightly, Andy. Yeah, I suspect it would be a slightly different answer. And, and I say that with the greatest affection. I've worked for both Radio National and Sky News, so uh, I... Um, I say it with affection for, for all concerned, but look, um, uh, it, it's a um, uh, you know it's a. There's no doubt about it. The, the breaking of the word when you've, as you said, Andy, the uh, my word is my bond thing. It's a very personal way of putting it. It was said over and over again. Uh, we know this promise was made by Labor in opposition. It was carried through into government. The Prime Minister continued saying it, and now the government has reversed its position. The fact that uh, you don't want, you don't see uh, any senior ministers saying yes, we've broken a promise. You know, not sort of putting the words in exactly that form. I think reflects, um, you know, recognition that they know this is a sensitive moment, but they have done so with their eyes open. They believe mm. that the numbers are on their side. That they've created a whole lot of new winners out of the rejigging of this stage three package, and that even the people who you might call losers to it, the um, the people on you know high incomes, two hundred thousand dollars and more, who were going to get nine thousand dollars, uh, nine thousand seventy five dollars, um, they're going to get you know half of that. Uh, they're not. It's not like they're getting a tax increase. They're still getting a tax cut. It's just not as mm. generous as it was before, mm. and that funds. Um, you know, much more generous tax cuts, in fact, more than double for people on average weekly earnings from what they were going to get under Stage 3. So the government believes that it has constructed a, a package which is which is better, which is more progressive in terms of the tax scales, and that's the argument it's going to run. But there's no doubt that there will be people who are going to be, who are going to remember this. And the opposition, it seems to me, is going to be um, sort of Abbott-like focused on it uh, between now and the next election. We see a fair bit of Tony Abbott in um, in the way Peter Dutton uh, positions himself anyway or the way he sort of uh, uh, prosecutes arguments, and mm. I expect that we're going to see that sort of focus on um, on the integrity question or the, you know, the promise question between now and the election. Jeffrey, can you do the wrong thing for the right reasons? And is that how you understand what uh, the Prime Minister's done? Well, I think that's going to be the big question and the big test. So I, I agree with all that's been said. By and large, most people look at the revised plan and think it's a better policy. I certainly do. Um, as Mark just explained, even the top earners are still getting a cut and it just really does talk to the sort of political world we live in that top brackets being cut still creates a political issue. It cuts across the board, right? What's going to be the problem is if the Prime Minister can get past the I broke my word. I think he will regret those five words massively and they will hang around him right through to an election. I'm not convinced enough people who sit in that top bracket that feel like they've been wrong or hard done by uh, are going to change a vote based on this. And if anything, 
I think he needs to prosecute the argument that he takes tax reform seriously. The world has changed. He's responding to good advice that he received and he's got a better policy and that actually all Australians are better off because of this policy. But this will really set us up for the contest moving forward between the Leader of the Opposition and the Prime Minister about who can win that argument. And I'm, I mean, he's, a, he's, a, he's proven himself to be a pretty good Prime Minister, but he hasn't prosecuted most of the arguments he's needed to make, including the referendum one, very well. This might be his second go at it, and let's hope he gets it right. Uh, setting aside the sample size of RN Drive listeners within the Australian community, this text does wrap uh, really uh, up exactly the sentiment I read this week. I'm in the high income category, uh, and I think it's the right and moral and ethical move. Why can't we praise a Prime Minister with this kind of courage and sense of fairness? And also lots of people reminding uh, us when John Howard said that there'll be no GST and the core and non-core promises. Yeah, that is the sort of generalised... Uh, um, sense of the debate there. Much like this, uh, well, the, the planned stage three tax cuts, uh, Scott Morrison announced his exit from politics this week. When he goes uh, next month, the former PM will leave behind somewhat of a complex legacy. Uh, Mark, I mean, it, it seems to be a decision that was a long time coming. There was lots of um, suggestion about certain jobs that he was going for overseas that didn't quite pan out. Should we be surprised that he took so long to make this next career move? And, and did the job search maybe take a little longer than he was expecting? <laughs> I think it is surprising. Uh, we don't have the tradition in this country that they have in Britain and some other places of prime ministers sort of staying around indefinitely and sometimes, you know, doing multiple terms after being prime minister, sometimes being prime minister a term or or two later again. Uh, we don't have that tradition uh, so much. Um, they tend to leave uh, Parliament. I remember Gillard, for example, when she uh, finally agreed to have a showdown with Rudd when he was stalking her after she'd initially stalked him. And I think one of her conditions was, OK, we'll have a ballot, but whoever loses has to leave Parliament. Um, and, and I thought at the time that's a pretty sensible idea because, after, you know, given what had gone on, you definitely needed to get rid of one of them. Um, uh, so, yes, look, I think it reflects the fact that uh, Scott Morrison uh, left in pretty ignominious circumstances. Uh, he, he led his party to a historic defeat. Let's not forget the loss of those teal seats was an absolute body blow to the Liberal Party. These were the, the jewels, the, uh, the Liberal heartland seats that were just surrendered as a result of the way that Morrison uh, ran, that, uh, ran that government. And, um, and then, of course, after he left, there were controversies around revelations about his multiple ministries and, you know, he made some speeches about, you know, not believing in government, believing in God and so forth. And I think all of these things probably made him unattractive to any sort of major corporate, at least domestically. And, um, yes, it has taken some time and I suspect it reflects those realities that he's um, taken best part of two years or uh, whatever it is, nearly 18 months, a bit more. Yeah. I can't help but uh, cheekily ask, Geoffrey, uh, <laughs> you, you ran as a Liberal candidate for the seat of Sydney in 2016. Do you think you would have enjoyed serving under Scott Morrison's government? Um, well, I've met Scott a number of times and find him um, pleasant company and, and fine over a drink. Um, I live in the seat of Wentworth now and I think, as Mark pointed out, it's a real tragedy that the teal tide was in no way um, stemmed by the leadership at the time. And, in fact, I think there's a lot for him to answer when it comes to those inner city seats that we talk about. Um, I think it's great he's going. I think it's not surprising it took so long. He hasn't yet, I don't think, announced where he's going. I'm not sure. I mean, the risk appetite of the corporate entity he might be joining must be pretty huge because he's not a very appealing character um, right now. 
I think what'll be really interesting to see is the contest for the seat of Cook. Yeah, do you think it's the Teals those, will have a crack there? Yeah, I'm really curious to see. Uh, you should get Byron Fay on the on the program next week and have a talk to him about it because uh-huh. that's really a test for them because it's moving you know more to that centre centre right traditional seat to just see how far you can take the teal template and let it thrive. Um, I would be surprised if they didn't. Given it'll be a by election, they'll have a lot of uh, concentrated resources and energy, so it's the right time for them to give it a, a, a go. Uh, it'll be really interesting to see how the Liberal Party approaches the pre-selection because it'll certainly demonstrate what is Peter Dutton's hold on the party as a leader and whether he gets his way or whether, you know, there's been some very serious moderate um, individuals in that part of the world, including the leader of the opposition now in New South Wales, Mark Speakman, who was, is the state member for the same, well, pretty much the same electorate. But he's ruled himself out, hasn't he? Exactly right. But what I'm saying is there is a moderate element in that part of Sydney and it'll just be a really interesting demonstration of whether it's strong enough to get a candidate into the final you know, ballot top two and or succeed or whether it just shows that the party is right now in that sort of centre-right Dutton grip, even in a place like Sydney, which traditionally has uh, a stronger moderate sort of tendency. Of course, two by-elections will be an interesting test for the Labor uh, Albanese government. Uh, we're going to have to leave it there. Uh, Camilla Mori, man and lawyer Geoffrey Winters, Mark Kenny, Professor of Politics at the Australian National University and the host of the Very Good Democracy Sausage podcast. Thank you so much. Hope you have a wonderful long weekend wherever you are around Australia. Uh, and thanks so much for your time today. Thanks, Andy. Thanks, Geoffrey. Yeah, thanks, mate. Lovely to join you. All the best. ABCRN helps you understand the world. Find more of our stories on the ABC Listen app.